You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra shower heads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking today with Jovita Lee. She is Senior Environmental Justice Campaigner for the Center for Biological Diversity. Jovita, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. We've got to talk about some serious issues here, uh, environmental justice in North Carolina, water issues in North Carolina. Um, but I think that these issues we're going to talk about, uh, agriculture, pollution, pipelines, uh, water contaminants and drinking water, these are things that our communities are facing around the country. So it's interesting yeah. to talk about them in North Carolina, and I think people can relate. <laughs> um, let's, let's start on the agriculture end. What, what are the challenges for water coming from CAFOs? These are concentrated animal feeding operations, right? What are, what are CAFOs and, and what are the water problems they cause? So CAFOs have unfortunately been one of the root causes of contamination in water in North Carolina for several years. Um, because these facilities uh, that actually uh, operate the CAFOs, such as Smithfield Foods, which is uh, the largest a hog producer in the world, not the country, the world, is located in eastern North Carolina. And because these facilities are located in these predominantly black, brown, or low-income communities, and these regions sit in um, floodplains, right? And so it's extremely easy when we have these 500-year storms like Hurricane Florence and otherwise, when they come in, it is immediate and extensive flooding. And so because of that, the waterways are saturated with waste, hog waste, and then now we're moving communities to bottled water or other systems to be able to hydrate themselves and take care of their family as far as the basic needs with cooking, bathing, and otherwise, because the water is no longer deemed safe. Because, you know, as you can imagine, nobody wants, nor is it sanitary, to consume hog waste in your water. So that is one of the largest problems when it comes to CAFOs is the flooding that we have from these storms because of all of the climate issues that we have in the state. And then now we're having communities uh, be on other systems of water. And so that's already an additional burden, an additional cost uh, for these communities to be operating on bottled water or other systems. Yeah. And so people that might not be familiar with the geography of North Carolina, that, that Eastern part of the States, like the coastal plain, it's pretty, it's flat. Right. And so, uh, you know, that, that waste kind of sits there. We get all these hurricanes, we get a lot of coastal storms. Um, and so like the, isn't a lot of the waste 
kind of gathered in like these lagoons or you know it's like mm -hmm. these big pits of of the waste from the hogs um and then that stuff can just overflow and spill into waterways absolutely um what what is being done you guys are campaigning to try to get changes what kind of changes should be made uh to better protect the, the water and the people in those communities Right. So there's definitely a vast effort um, from community organizations and leaders to make sure that there is a push against the rapid permitting that is happening in North Carolina. Um, some folks may know, but like as we speak, there's different projects that are being presented that need water permits and air quality permits. Right. And one of those being the Grady Road project, um, which is basically a swine to energy Projects, the first of its kind in North Carolina. And so it's been a group effort to try and block the passing of these permits. So these facilities and these um, projects won't keep popping up in North Carolina and making the situation worse. And so there's definitely a lot of pushback around the permitting process in North Carolina and also on the federal level, what are the regulations coming out of the EPA and how does that replicate with our North Carolina DEQ? Because as of right now, regulations are a little loose. So corporations are able to slide into loopholes when they're creating these projects because they're not being hounded as they should or being held accountable as they should when it comes to regulating these facilities and making sure that the pre-work, as far as the research of what are these facilities going to do? Are they actually going to be adequate sources? Are they actually going to be safe in these communities and not blow up or spill over? All of that pre-work is being ignored for the most part. And things are just being pushed through because it's seen as just a financial opportunity for the state. But we also need to think about the environmental harm and the harm to community. And we keep putting these issues in the same exact region, eastern North Carolina. And so when you have all of these things, you start looking at cumulative impact. And so that's another thing that we are researching and pushing for is that in these regulations, we need to uplift cumulative in, uh, impact because we need to examine not only the project at hand, but we need to start examining what is already existent in these areas. How are these facilities going to work together or against each other? And that's just research that has not been done or has not been prioritized in the regulations in the permitting process. And so that's a no-go because we need to know exactly what to expect with these facilities because we can't guarantee folks safety. We can't guarantee proper water and proper resources for these communities if we do not know what we're getting ourselves into. And so this whole haste of just passing things to pass things, thinking of it as a financial opportunity rather than thinking of the constituents first from our elected officials and otherwise and our um, regulators, we need to definitely make sure that we're prioritizing the other way around. So there's definitely a lot of effort around that, but those are definitely the big bucket items is like, how are we regulating these projects? Because we can't just allow a free for all and expect <laughs> to protect the community. Yeah. What's interesting, you know, is these, these facilities and businesses, you know, are located in the communities, right? So, and people working at these facilities live in those communities. So you would think there would be some, interest in protecting the health of the communities where your workforce comes from, right? Um, right. <laughs> uh, there's no effort by these facilities or even by the companies to try to change any of this or to change their practices or start doing the right thing, if you will. 
So there's a lot of greenwashing that's coming out and a lot of kind of shadowing over the real issue. So, um, for example, this recent project that I was mentioning in the corporation's eyes, this is a good move because we're going to be able to produce more energy. But the backlash and the impact is not being prioritized or examined. And so you would think, like you said, that the protection of these folks would be a priority. But unfortunately, it's not because most of our time, especially during this pandemic, has been fighting for workers' rights and worker protections and stricter protections within these corporations. Because as it stands, these corporations don't even have mandates as far as uh, PPE and protection of workers during a pandemic. They are less than six feet away. So they are exposed to each other each and every day. They do not have adequate PPE to protect themselves from COVID-19, as well as making sure that they're just safe in the workplace. So to say that they are prioritizing their workers' safety would be a, a mistake because they, quite frankly, are not. And, you know, you would hope that if your workforce is, you know, what is the driving force behind your success, you would think that they would be prioritized and, and made um, to be safe and feel safe. But that's not the case at all. Um, they are definitely uh, just production focused. And if yeah. it doesn't have anything to do with production, they're not interested. Um, the the new, like, you know, waste to energy proposal that you talked about. I, I had heard about that. Um, so what what exactly are they proposing? That they'll take hog waste, the manure, and convert it into energy, a, a gas, but they've got to use like a big pipeline to get this done. What, what's the what's the deal? Absolutely. So it is a joint project between Align RNG and Smithfield Foods, who I mentioned before. And so and Dominion Energy, which is basically the twin of Duke Energy. Um, and so this project is going to require a 34 mile pipeline to transport the methane. It'll be methane gas. Um, and so they'll have an upgrading what they consider upgraded facility that will collect um, the gas and inject it into the pipeline. And so that is their swine to energy uh, project. But we already know that pipelines are not guaranteed. You cannot guarantee anyone's safety around a pipeline, just quite frankly, um, and then because they're unpredictable. And then this is not a healthy gas. And so you know, a lot of folks with with methane, like it's, it's odorless, it's, col it's colorless. So like there could be so much going on um, in relation to this gas, it could be in your air, obviously, in your waterways, and you just wouldn't even know it because it's such a sneaky gas um, to have. And so that is just not a feasible source of energy. There are absolutely other ways that we could be producing energy. And, you know, there's a lot of work in the state around utility and how to break that up to make sure that we do have energy choice. Um, but this project is definitely uh, the opposite of that. Yeah. Well, you know, pipelines overall, there's some history here in North Carolina with, with pipelines trying to run through the state. Um, I know that there was a recent success in kind of defeating a pipeline proposal. Could you talk about um, maybe that, that recent success and, you know, what else is being proposed? Right. So there was a pipeline called the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which you guessed it, would have ran right through the eastern North Carolina region of the state, right? And so this pipeline was proposed back in, I want to say, 2014. And so it was canceled out last year. And it was literally the strength of the community, community leaders, activists, all of the folks who were working on this campaign, all of the pushback 
that caused several delays in their construction because they weren't able to attain the permits that they needed and et cetera. And so it got to the point where um, it was a project between Duke and Dominion Energy yet again. Um, and so it got to a point where they realized that, you know, they're going to have to back out of this because this project is not going to go forth as they assumed. And so, of course, you know, they, you know, glossed over it, but really it was just highlighting community leaders and community folks highlighting the fact that this project is dangerous. It's not going to work. There is no research on this. So we need to be sure that, you know, if we're going to bring a project yet again into Eastern North Carolina, we cannot have something come in and ruin that region even more. And so that effort was definitely a collective effort of community. But pipelines in general, you cannot ignore the impact between, you know, runoff from, from construction, like that's harmful to species. We're talking about drilling fluid that's completely dangerous and can leak into your waterways. Pipelines are normally built through floodplains and through rivers and streams. And so that's an additional burden on waterways and water systems. So it's just extremely dangerous to keep proposing these pipelines, um, but it keeps happening. And one of which being um, the Mountain Valley Pipeline Southgate is a new proposal that will run from Virginia to North Carolina. And so that's another project that we are absolutely trying to stop um, because it's definitely going to be somewhat of a replica of the Atlantic Coast uh, pipeline. And so it's, it's just time out relying on these systems. There are just healthier, safer systems that we could be moving to as a state and as a nation. Um, and so that is the direction that we are trying to push these corporations for sure. But there is unfortunately another proposed um, pipeline. There is litigation around it. Um, and so we are definitely uh, pushing back on that project and we will definitely see the outcome soon. Yeah. So when it, when it comes to these pipelines, the, the real solution is don't do them. <laughs> you know, that's absolutely it's, it's a straight, <laughs> yeah, straightforward as that and, and pursue these other sources of energy, right? Other types of projects, right. like there's so much out there. Um, drinking water. This is a, an area that a lot of, uh, communities, uh, have issues with and, and suffer disproportionately, you know, uh, the impacts. So I know one of the, the, topics in North Carolina is 1,4-dioxane. Uh, let's put on our chemistry hats here, I guess. <laughs> what what, yes. what is that? Where does it come from? Why is that a concern? So 1,4-dioxane is basically a man-made compound and it's colorless liquid and it can have a faint odor, but oftentimes not. Um, and one of the biggest issues with this chemical is it can't biodegrade. So it doesn't break down. And it's coming from a corporation, uh, Hemores, which is a spinoff of DuPont. Uh, folks may remember uh, in Virginia a, a few decades ago. Um, and so it's a spinoff company of that. Um, and they are responsible for creating it because it's actually a byproduct of all of their cleaning products and um, cleaning ingredients mixed together. So it's a man-made compound. It's not even something real that our bodies can handle or break down properly as, you know, the nutrients and water that we consume on the regular, how we break those down and they benefit our body. This is not one of those things. Um, and so it's going to be a chemical folks that have already unfortunately consumed it. It's going to live on in your body forever. It, it won't go anywhere. It's not going to leave your body. And so there's this man-made unknown chemical that is in um, the bodies of several North Carolinians already because the water was being consumed before this highlight of this chemical, right? And so this definitely impacts the Cape Fear um, River and Hall Rivers because this is where the chemical compound is found because that's where Hamoris is located. 
Um, and so again, the drinking water is compromised in North Carolina and communities are now looking at bottled water of the sources again, because there's another contaminant within their waterways. And so right now, um, the EPA is being petitioned because of this chemical and several others. There's been several community organizations, environmental organizations that have come together to petition the EPA to actually regulate and evaluate these chemicals properly, because as it stands now, there has not been any regulation or evaluation of these chemicals. So we don't even know how extensive the harm of this chemical could be, because these are, we're talking about communities that already have a high risk of cancer, lung disease, heart disease, because of all of the cumulative impact that we talked about at the beginning of the hour. It's now something else being added to the list. And we have little, uh, little to no knowledge about the true impact that it's going to have, especially because it doesn't leave the body. So we have no idea what the chemical is doing within the body right now. And so that is extremely dangerous. That is not something you want to give to yourself, your children. There's schools that are on bottled water. Teachers are having to provide the water for their students to get through the school day. Like it's become absurd as far as how folks are having to live without adequate amounts of water. It is water is a resource. We need it for everything. So the fact that you know, communities are having to spend money and fight. And these teachers, and educators are having to spend money and fight for bottled water to make sure that children have safe drinking water and safe drinking water for themselves is just out of the question. And so that is um, the energy behind the petition of the EPA, because we definitely need some eyes on this to make sure that, you know, we're we're putting the pressure on Hemores to figure out, hey, your products are creating this compound that is absolutely dangerous. And we need to take care of that. We can't just allow the community to keep consuming this over and over again um, until someone wants to fix it. It needs to be fixed. Yeah. Well, I know. Was it? Was it? It wasn't just one four dioxane that's part of that petition. Was it some other chemicals also? Was like uh, like the PFAS and part of that too? Is that right? Yeah, PFAS is a part of it. Gen X, and so these are all just compound chemicals that are just found in the waterways. And so it's almost, uh, I want to say a hundred chemicals listed mm. uh, in the petition. There are several uh, man-made compounds and small chemicals that folks haven't even heard of that are listed uh, in the petition that are uh, contaminating the waterway, same waterways I listed, Cape Fear and Haw River, um, and probably several others um, within North Carolina. So it's, it's an extensive list of chemicals that just have not been regulated because they're in cleaning products, they're in other things that we use. Um, some things are in our clothing. I think I've heard that there's like some jackets and some clothing items that have the PFAS chemical in it because it's just such a regular chemical that's used in everything that we uh, consume as just, you know, North Carolinians and just consumers, period. So now it's this backtrack of like, oh, shoot, we have been using this chemical for quite a while. And, you know, it's dangerous and it's harmful, but it wasn't known to folks. Um, well, to, you know, the normal consumer, uh, but corporations yeah. have known about it for a little while. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm downstream of all that. I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, I'm sitting yeah. a couple miles from the Cape Fear River right now. Our drinking water comes from the Cape Fear River and that Camores, one of those Camores facilities is up in the Fayetteville, North Carolina area, right? Yep. And they, they were putting Gen X in the water, discharging that for close to four decades before that came yes. out publicly, right? And just like, yes. it's heartbreaking to think about all the exposure that people had for that amount of time, um, all those communities along that river, a lot of low income areas, communities of color here in Wilmington. Um, so 
I'm, you know, I'm grateful as a, as a resident <laughs> that you all are, are fighting that. Um, it, you know, it's been a, an explosive year and there's been a real uh, rise in the demand for equity uh, and justice and environmental justice as part of all of that. Um, right. I think I'm just curious as to how the past year or nine months, whatever, has really impacted your work. If you're feeling and seeing a lot more people uh, wanting to address these issues, especially environmental justice issues, as part of the broader equity push. So there is definitely a good and bad to it. Good being uh, the exposure, uh, the additional hands on deck opportunities uh, for folks to be meeting with these regulators and elected officials who have some of this decision-making power in their hands um, to be included in agendas, uh, increase in public participation, all of those things that we need for the additional like grassroots portion of this work has definitely improved as far as the amount of folks and the highlight of these issues, because we definitely need folks to learn about it and know about it so they can care about it and get into action. So that part of it has been um, an increase and it's been good. But the downside of it is environmental justice historically has always been pit against traditional environmentalism. Um, and it's, it's a longstanding battle that has gotten somewhat better, but it has not been eradicated in the least bit. And so because of that, sometimes there are instances where community organizations or grassroots leaders, folks who are truly on the ground, moving the work for their communities, putting their own health at risk, um, are often overlooked at times when it comes to um, funding and resources. And so that's also been an issue uh, with this is that because there is a grand interest and we love that, um, but we also need to be equitable in our allocation of the resources and the funding and making sure that the folks that have been doing this work for 20, 30, 40 years are actually at the front of that line and the uh, front of the receiving end for those things. So that has been a point of tension within uh, this uh, kind of new energy and then also um, just making sure, separate from what I'm saying, making sure that folks are protected during this time. A lot of our work, especially around election, was around PPE. We sent out several hundred thousand PPE kits um, in relation to uh, Democracy Green, which is an organization I am lead of. Uh, it is a 501c3 organization here in North Carolina focused on um, natural disaster relief um, and also making sure our black and brown communities are protected um, and environmental justice. So those are the focuses of that organization. And so through that and through partnerships with other organizations um, like Advanced Carolina, who truly led the charge, um, getting PPE kits and protection out to folks, that was a lot of the focus as well, because as we know, this pandemic is impacting black and brown folks a lot differently than it's impacting others. And so we had to make sure that throughout this time when folks were out uh, protesting when it was time to vote, that folks felt safe and protected and didn't feel like they could not participate because they could not access the type of protection that other folks could access. So that was definitely a part of our work that shifted was more of just like, are our folks safe? Mm -hmm. um, that was really what it boiled down to over the past nine to 10 months. Yeah. Um, 
Well, that's interesting what you said also about the making sure that the resources that are starting to crop up or, or be pushed into this space are going out equitably. Am I interpreting that right? That like uh, now that maybe some more, not prominent environmental groups, but traditional environmental groups are like, oh, we need to be more active in the EJ space or we need to be focusing more on equity. So some of the resources are, might be going to them instead of the, the environmental justice groups that have been doing this for decades and are really rooted in it. Is that is that right? So Yes, that is a perfect interpretation. Okay. And I will say that there are organizations that are reallocating it like immediately they may receive it and then immediately give it back. Um, so I don't want to discredit that. There are organizations out there that are um, shifting the resources uh, to make sure that, you know, the appropriate organizations are receiving them. But on a grand scheme of things, there's still that battle. And it's, it did not uh, create itself within this pandemic. It's historic. It was um, and so, it's, yeah, so it's, it's something that is it, we're going to have to continuously uh, fight against because it, it is rooted in uh, this movement, unfortunately. And like I said, it's gotten better over time, but there's still work to be done. Mm. How long have you been working in this field, would you say? So I have been in this field for about five or six years, if we're talking specifically environmental, um, but definitely advocacy became a part of my life. A while back, I was an intern my senior year of high school and then just kept moving within the movement. And so I've definitely stayed in this nonprofit advocacy space. I'm a daughter of a Black Panther. So advocacy was always going to be a part of my life, whether I wanted it to, to be or not. And so this <laughs> yeah. is definitely um, the space uh, that I wanted to be in. And so um, doing this work is beyond rewarding because I can't imagine doing anything else. Like if my people, if my communities are not okay, then I'm not okay. And so I need to be making sure that I can use my expertise and use my resources to make sure that, you know, I'm improving their quality of life the best way that I can. Yeah. Do you feel, um, you know, this, this kind of renewed focus, this energy, these resources that have popped up the past year, um, you know, do you feel like this can continue? Do you think there's real momentum and this isn't going to be, you know, kind of a, just a, a, a upturn and then go back to how it was? Does something feel different now? I think that there will definitely be an increase in momentum. I can't say that there won't be somewhat of a drop off because that's just how advocacy works. Mm. But I definitely agree um, that there will be an increase um, in interest that will kind of stay um, simply because I think this pandemic exposed a lot of gaps, a lot of gaps, especially in North Carolina um, in relation to like folks having their basic needs. Like we're still having the conversation of adequate funding for rental assistance and for mortgage assistance, for utility assistance. And so those are basic things that we need each and every month. We need, you know, somewhere to stay. We need um, the utilities to be able to stay there comfortably. And so exposing these gaps, I think, has benefited the movement to to kind of prove what we've been saying uh, for years, which, you know, there's been many instances of proof. But I think this has really drilled a lot of it home. Like, oh, we really don't have the protections in place that we thought we did. We really don't have the regulation that we thought we did. And so I'm hopeful that the exposure of these gaps, even though it's hard to look at, it's hard to see, because we definitely don't want anyone in the state or this nation to go without but I'm hopeful that this exposure is going to move folks along, elected officials, folks who have decision-making power to say, okay, 
something needs to shift because we were not able to take care of our folks like we thought we could. Um, and we need to make sure that our funding is allocated properly and that we need to, you know, give residents a break rather than, you know, giving corporations a break. So that is my hope within this energy. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Another question that popped into my head, you know, the uh, former, I guess, secretary of the Department of Environmental Quality for North Carolina, right? He's the Mm -hmm. one that's been nominated to be the new administrator for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Just curious as to maybe your and your organization's thoughts on that and what that might mean for some of these, you know, battles in North Carolina that require federal, you know, involvement. I think the benefit in that is because he's from this state, there will be an advantage as far as knowledge is concerned. So it won't be starting from ground zero to educate him on these issues. He's well aware of them. And so I think that's where um, the benefit is going to lie because we'll be able to spend more time discussing what are next steps, what are the action that you know, we're going to take in order to combat against, you know, these bad practices that are happening in North Carolina. You know, what plans, projects can we come up with um, in collaboration that makes sense to protect um, the folks of North Carolina? I think that is really where the win is, is because we won't have to start from the beginning. We can actually start right from direct action, like what can take place to make sure that we are, you know, having adequate processes um, in North Carolina in regards to permitting and regulation and other things that we may need. And then also, you know, additionally, making sure that we have, you know, someone within the EPA um, that we can tap and make sure, you know, and and hold accountable because that's going to be the other side of it too, because there's a wealth of knowledge with um, Michael Regan, there is also going to be accountability because you, you, you know, he's well aware of these issues. And so we're going to, um, hope that he operates within that knowledge and within that vein. Well, Jovita, I, I feel like I could keep chatting with you and going on and on here and asking lots of stuff about North Carolina, but uh, I really appreciate connecting with you. I'm glad that we were able to, a lot of good information and perspective and you know appreciate your work for sure. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated the time. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop.